0: This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then use it as an excuse to argue about shit. I'm Brian Latendry
1: and I'm Anthony Johnston and today we are talking about So Far So Good So What by Megadeth.
0: And I am so excited to talk about this album <laughs> because we this, this is uh we are closing the loop not only on the origin of this podcast but also the big four. So it's a it's a it's a cool milestone episode of the ones that we've recorded so far to to get to this band. And also one that I would guess would be pretty divisive.
1: Yeah, I was going to say also a milestone in that I think this is probably the first episode where where we are genuinely going to be arguing about stuff. <laughs> you know, the, the, past, the past three episodes we've had disagreements and clearly there are differences of opinion. But this one, Megadeth, as we already know, you and I, is the one of the big four that really kind of divides us
0: Sure. And so just to sort of recap that bit of it of the big four, Megadeth has always been my favorite and Megadeth is my favorite heavy metal band. So uh so for me, I am um uh I have a tough time seeing the criticism but also uh know that it's there and I am one of the I'm part of the Megadeth defense force. So I'm I'm <laughs> trying to curb that, that that tendency as we go through, but uh, but yeah, I was actually thinking to myself this morning as I was, uh, I would listen to the album again because it's so short this morning and uh, was making notes and I was thinking to myself, you know, I, people hate Dave Mustaine the way that I have a dislike for Lars Ulrich and and I have to remember ah, that right. sometimes <laughs> because Dave really is a guy who people dislike and because they dislike him, have a really tough time even getting behind any of Megadeth's music and and I have to accept that because there's that's sometimes the way I feel about Metallica.
1: Right, right. Um, so let's right. talk about how
0: your feelings about that's just in general, before we even dive in.
1: Well, wait a second. Before we get into that, I want to do a quick bit of follow-up on uh, last week's episode. Oh. Sli- slightly embarrassing, but also quite amusing. Um, you remember we got to the end of the album and the the, the ballad, the bastard ballad, Bear.
0: Oh, yes. Yep. On
1: Stomp 442. And, uh, you know, I was like, well, that's not on my copy. Yeah. Um, turns out turns out actually it is um <laughs> was it just, one of those
0: things where you self-edited it out when you made yeah, your own uh, mix of it, the album
1: right exactly i never ripped it i never ripped it there you go and i was you know when we were prepping for the show i didn't think to actually get my cd copy i just thought oh, i'll just listen to it on my itunes copy and i literally completely blanked on that song. Like I was listening to it and I was like, yep, that's the whole album. It never once occurred to me like, hang on, isn't there a song missing here? Um, I mean, I I don't normally do that. I am. I'm a little bit of a completist. I am an albums guy and I have no problems with ballads per se. You know, I've got plenty of other records on which have got dodgy tracks that I normally skip. Sure. But with that one, for and, and I do like ballads. I mean, take me to a Metallica show and I will be right there down the front singing along during Fade to Black, you know? Sure, uh, I think Return to Serenity is one of Testament's best songs.
0: It's a great song.
1: I do Cemetery Gates at karaoke, for heaven's oh, sake. Oh,
0: Cemetery Gates. That's <laughs> that's <laughs> one know. of the greatest songs of all time, bar none anyways. Right.
1: But so my point, you know, I have no problem with ballads. One of my favorite non-metal bands is The Carpenters, for heaven's sake. I don't have a problem with that sort of song. But that particular song, I don't know. I, I guess that shows just how much I dislike it and feel that it does not belong on the album, you know?
0: <laughs> uh, it, that's what I think it goes to. When when we talked about it at that point in time, I think it, one of the things that I was saying about it is it just, it was a good song and it arguably might have been one of the better songs of that group of songs, but it didn't feel like it had a place on that album. And, and I, like you, will very rarely um, do edit a song out of an album when I listen to it. The only one I can think of is a Megadeth album. It was the original. Huh. Um, it was when there was a cover of "These Boots Are Made for Walking that Megadeth did on, You're the, on on "Killing Is My Business." Um, oh my goodness! And it was one that, in subsequent releases, ended up getting heavily edited because, the, and so there was lyrics missing and stuff like that. It was, but in any case, it had no place on the album. It didn't fit with anything else that was on the album, and even though you know, Gar Samuelson was a very jazz fusion sort of drummer and there's a lot of blues in some of what Megadeth does. It it just didn't have a place on the album. So I would frequently, um, you know, back in the day when I would have a cassette of it, I would leave that off of, (laughs) of the, of the mix, Ah, but that's probably the only album that I can think of where I did that. And both of those are in the big fours album. So, so we each have one of those.
1: Yeah. But, but the fact that I had forgotten I'd even done it, that's, that's the thing that gets me. I literally, I wasn't, you know, like just sort of having a laugh last time, I literally had forgotten.
0: <laughs> that, that, that is song too funny, was
1: even on the album.
0: I know because I was like, Wait, w- "I wonder what version he has." Because my, my experience with that is our the music store, and I think I've told this before that I have in my hometown, which I live five minutes away from now, is called Music Outlet. And Music Outlet was a place that when I was in high school, I worked at a grocery store, and it was in the same sort of strip mall that my grocery store was in and at the store when I was 14 or 15, they would cash your check for you. So I would cash my check and I would walk over to Music Outlet and my friend and I would each buy half of the new releases that came out that week. And so that's how we kept up with everything throughout Mm. my entire uh, high school years. But what was sort of mysterious and exotic about this Music Outlet place is that Gary, who is the guy that still to this day owns and runs this place, um, would get imports, and and this was when I didn't even know what an import was, and and you would walk in, and especially when uh, when CDs started getting popular, he would get tons of these Japanese imports that always had extra tracks or B sides or um, ah, live performances see, right. or songs that you would never find on any other release, and so and of course they were much more expensive, but I always used to stare at them in the glass case. So there were always these different versions of albums that he would get. That would be different than the one that I purchased. And so. I certainly had no trouble believing that there was a cut of that album out there that did not include that.
1: And and neither did I. (laughs) It just turns out that actually I was wrong.
0: (laughs) Well, that's interesting. Yeah, that's cool.
1: Oh man. So anyway, so yes, sorry everyone about that. And sorry if since last week you've been hunting down things on eBay and the internet going like, there must be a copy of this album somewhere. I'm afraid I was wrong. It doesn't exist.
0: That's how we build community. (laughs) We give people things to be upset about and want to correct us about. And then that, that keeps them coming back to the next episode so we'll just do a mea culpa at the beginning of every episode of what we probably screwed up and uh and and this is probably a good time to mention i am not a guitar player i am not uh, a musician i am someone who loves music i mean i have a bass but i'm not i'm not great at it at all so uh a lot of the things that i talk about are probably technically misspoken (laughs) when i speak about (laughs) stuff so but feel free to correct me anyways
1: yeah hey well no i i'm I do play but I'm completely self-taught. I've never had an actual lesson in my life. So I'm sure a lot of the terms that I use are not probably the correct terms yep. either.
0: And I'll have a couple of those today as we go through for sure. So.
1: All right. So, so moving on, Megadeth. My least favorite of the big four. Um and I I mean I know why, but I I'm struggling to actually remember when I first sort of encountered Megadeth. Um, One of my oldest friends has, or I should say had, um, at his family home in his bedroom, had a couple of Megadeth posters on his wall. Um, I'm pretty sure I had heard of them before then. I think just from seeing, you know, people with patches on the back of their denim, that sort of thing. Um, I'm pretty sure the first Megadeth song I ever heard was something on MTV, you know, on Headbangers Ball or something. Probably Um, Wake
0: Up Dead because that's the riff that they used in their intro for many, many, many years.
1: Oh, right. But then I wouldn't have known that it was Megadeth. I mean, like, the first thing I knowingly Oh, sure. Yep. I think was actually either Hangar 18 or Sweating Bullets. Okay. Um, I think. But, like, the memory's hazy. I just remember. And at that that point, I should say also, at that point, I wasn't even a huge... uh, thrash fan in general you know we are going back quite some time now and i was a metal fan certainly but i wasn't big into like you know say metallica and that's why i didn't like megadeth or anything um i listened to those bands sure but i wasn't you know sort of a mega mega fan if you'll pardon the pun um but there was just something about those megadeth songs that i heard that just didn't interest me they didn't stick in my mind they didn't grab me in the same way that when I first heard, say, Ride the Lightning did. Um, or, well, or indeed when, you know, as we said last week, when Anthrax um, reinvented themselves with John Bush, you know, and it really grabbed me and I was like, whoa, I need to listen to this. Megadeth never did that for me. So it's, you know, understand, I don't hate Megadeth. They just have never interested me. Sure, And nothing they've ever done has made me want to go out and you know listen to more of them (laughs) Um, so
0: it's interesting because you mentioned your friend had a couple of posters of megadeth and i think i'm thinking back to when as i listened to this album and and uh i've listened to this album thousands of times uh this so far so good so but i believe that this was the first megadeth album that i purchased which was uh so actually i bought uh killing is my business and i bought peace cells Peace Cells was probably the first one I bought from someone that I went to school with in middle school. But the first one that I went to a music store and bought was So Far So Good So What. But what drew me to Megadeth is there was a kid who was in my middle school who had a Peace Cells uh, patch on the back of his jean jacket.
1: Right, right.
0: uh, And I'm glad you brought this up because Megadeth is one of the bands of the 80s who had a mascot. And this is something that you don't see as much of nowadays. I think probably the most iconic mascot in all of metal is Iron Maiden's Eddie.
1: Absolutely, um, and
0: yeah. so you had these other bands, and of the big four, uh, really Anthrax and Megadeth are the two that had Slayer had sort of the soldier character, but uh, Megadeth and Anthrax each had a mascot. Uh, Anthrax had the Knot Man, who was very much a cartoonish sort of uh, embodiment of the the fun and the New York vibe that Anthrax sort of brought to their metal and Megadeth's mascot is Vic Rattlehead, and he is someone... Oh, is that what
1: he's called? <laughs> yeah, it's,
0: his name is Vic Rattlehead, and he is this uh, skeletal figure that has sort of iron plates that are bolted over his eyes. His mouth is uh, has giant hooks that hold his jaw closed, and his ears are covered with um, what looks like almost like headphones, but they have chains hanging from the side of them. And so Megadeth's early album covers... And we could talk about Killing Is My Business on a different time, but specifically like um, when you think of uh, Peace cells and you think of Rust in Peace, there was an artist by the name of Ed Repka, and he would do these album covers for Megadeth. And the way that he drew Vic Rattlehead and the coloring that he used on the album covers and stuff, they're they're beautiful and haunting, and they they give you a sense of this character. Megadeth actually wrote a song about Vic Rattlehead um, called... Skull beneath the skin on killing is my business. And the whole concept of Vic Rattlehead, A, is that if you headbang hard enough, you'll rattle your brains. And that was sort of one thing behind it, but also that, um, you know, that this guy had just been stripped away and it was sort of a see no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil sort of thing. And so he was one of the more iconic mascots of a metal band during the mid to late 80s and certainly the early 90s, he became very synonymous with Megadeth. And whenever they would do an album cover that did not feature Vic Rattlehead, they would get a lot of feedback (laughs) People would not like it. People did not like it. And so um, you saw that he sort of made a comeback. And I think Ed Repka came back when they did The System Has Failed and did another cover for them. Um, But it was one of those things where, um, almost like Pusshead was the guy that was doing the uh, Metallica Album covers and came back and did Saint Anger. I think it was. was didn't didn't he uh, do that one? But so so he was very synonymous with a lot of the, um, if not the album covers, then certainly the posters and the um, t-shirts and and the jean jacket patches and stuff like that. And so much the same way Ed Repka and Vic Rattlehead were very synonymous with Megadeth. So being a horror fan, some of the imagery of Megadeth. And again, I think this is something that is somewhat lost in today's heavy metal and music scene. You that was my sort of window into. Megadeth. I was like, "Whoa! What is? Who is that guy? And what is this all about? And holy crap!" And the kid that had the jean jacket sold me a copy of Peace Cells, and that sort of got me into Megadeth. <laughs> but, but the album that we're going to talk about today—so uh, far, so good. So what is the first one that I think I went out and bought in the store, brand new?
1: And notably, doesn't have, or certainly doesn't have a painted version of the mascot Correct. on the cover. I'm not sure if what if the guy. It's clearly a sort of distorted photograph meant to look like a bad quality video. Is that actually meant to be the same guy? It's really hard to tell.
0: It is meant to be a sort of Vic Rattlehead, but it is absolutely not the same type. And it may have had to do with the budget they were that they were working with for for that album. I don't know because they brought him back for the very iconic Rust in Peace cover, which came out two years later. And everybody who anybody who knows Megadeth can, right. can at least acknowledges the existence of Rust in Peace, and you have that. You know, picture of Vic rattlehead holding up the green gem on the front of the cover you know and it's very alien conspiracy and government conspiracy and that type of stuff and so the imagery of some of megadeth's covers in some ways people know that more than they even know the band's music um, especially if they're not fans they'll at least recognize oh yeah i remember that album cover and i remember um that I- i'm just
1: stuff. I- i'm actually looking them up now to try and right peace cells was definitely one of the posters in question uh-huh. i'm looking at the artwork now and that's that's Yes, that was definitely one of them. What was the other album you mentioned?
0: Uh, Well, he originally, now it's funny because the original artwork that he did Dave Mustaine originally sketched out what he thought Vic Rattlehead looked like was the cover for Killing Is My Business.
1: Killing Is My Business, that was the that was the other one I was thinking. And of, it's yeah. sort
0: of Vic Rattlehead's head with a bunch of bones behind it and stuff like that, but when the album first came out, uh Killing Is My Business, it had a photo cover. And it was a photo cover ah, of yes. a recreation of the image of Vic Rattlehead with I bullet holes that. in the eyes of the uh of the iron sort of mask that he wears.
1: And also not the Megadeth logo. Huh?
0: Right. It was a very stylized, um, almost gothic-y, you know, Megadeth lo- logo when it yeah, first- Yeah, sort of
1: like, you know, British uh, yes. style, you know, kind of the sort of thing you'd expect to see on a Saxon cover. Or, right, rather, which is certainly rather, appropriate- Rather than given the pointy Megadeth logo we all know, yeah.
0: Absolutely. And so, yeah. And so, you know, once they got into P Cells, that's when you saw the, the logo that they're more known for, which is right. another thing that I think we'll talk about a lot as we go through these bands that- you know, were anywhere from the late seventies to the early eighties to the nineties. Like the idea of the logo and how important the logo was, and, and oh, yeah. all of that kind yeah. of stuff. Like the branding of these metal bands was so super important because these were the logos that we were all drawing on our exactly. book covers You've that were made out of grocery that bags.
1: You, you have to learn in order to draw it on your exercise book. Yeah,
0: <laughs> absolutely. You had to be able to draw the cover the logos of the bands that you were a big fan of and even bands that i didn't care for i liked drawing the logos of so like kiss you know kiss i was never a huge kiss fan but man i love drawing the kiss logo
1: but it had to be complex enough that you needed to learn how to draw it that's right. the thing it couldn't ju- like the kiss logo never interested me. Cause that was just like, yeah, whatever that's, you know, that's I just remember working
0: on the twisted sister logo quite a bit until I felt <laughs> like I had really nailed the length of the, the T and the S and how it loops around and stuff like that. But I yeah. remember
1: I, I could draw the Marillion logo from memory. And I was very proud of that when I was like 12 years old. There you
0: go. <laughs> that's too funny. So yeah. So these are the types of trips down memory lane that we'll take as we go through this stuff. So, so, but you're right. So when mega so far, so good. So what came out, it didn't have that, very artistic cover which i think some fans were not a huge fan of and and this album was released in 1998 uh it is only eight songs long
1: 1988 surely
0: Yep, yeah, 88 i'm sorry did i say 98 i meant you 88. Said
1: 90, yeah yeah 1988 <laughs> wow. it came out if this had been released in 98 it would be a ver- have a very different context <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah, very different feel i'm sure so yeah it came out in between peace cells and rust in peace and so the two reasons that i chose this album is one well, a few reasons. One, because it's really short. So it's uh, it's very easy to get through and listen to and, and give sort of multiple listens to. Um, but as we talked about with South of Heaven and some of the Insane Anger too, when we talked about Metallica, this is sort of a transition album for Megadeth because you had uh, Chris Poland and Gar Samuelson, who were the guitarist and uh, a drummer respectively of the early incarnation of Megadeth, who were let go after Peace Cells. And so on this record... You have half the band that is only here for one record. You had Chuck Baylor, who was the drum technician for Gar Samuelson. And this is a trend that Megadeth, you know. uh, We talked about this last time. Everybody
1: seems to have followed this, don't they?
0: Exactly, because it was then Nick Menza, who was Chuck Baylor's Drum tech who replaces him for Rust in Peace. <laughs> but Chuck Baylor came on for this album and replaced Gar Samuelson. Chuck Baylor, uh, a very competent drummer, but a very different drummer than Gar Samuelson. Gar Samuelson was a very unorthodox drummer for the thrash era of metal. He was very sort of jazz oriented. And so when you listen to the early Megadeth albums, Killing Is My Business and Peace Sells, you will hear that he has a very different playing style. And uh, and the whole rhythm section is basically different in in those first two albums. So this one was a much more straight-ahead sort of rhythm section. And you can see Megadeth sort of streamlining their sound a little bit for what would then become the Rust in Peace sort of sound, which a lot of people associate Rust in Peace and Countdown to Extinction, those two albums as sort of the pinnacle of you know, Megadeth's uh, sound, at least for that era. Of mm-hmm. megadeth so this is kind of an anomaly this album because you have two guys that come on and they're here for one album you have an album that was plagued with production issues you have an album that was certainly affected by the fact that there was a lot of uh, drug use going on you had the breakup of the early incarnation of the band and what you come out the other end with is essentially six songs an instrumental and a cover ba- a cover song so you really yeah. are getting six um fully sort of realized Megadeth songs on this album, which was something that at the time, this album was extremely well-received at the time. In subsequent years, a lot of critics have gone back and taken a lot of shots at this album for reasons just like that. It's very short. There's really only six real songs on the album. um, And so it's kind of gotten some flack over the years when people start ranking the Megadeth albums from top to bottom. But at the time, it was very well-received, And uh, because Anarchy in the UK was the first video off of this album that came out on MTV, um, a lot of people were exposed to Megadeth, um, you know, that way. And that that was a very popular song for Megadeth on MTV's rotation when it first came out.
1: All right. That's, I I mean, you know, like I've said, I am not Megadeth's biggest fan or defender by any means, but that's unfair to if something's well-received at the time, to then sort of retrospectively go, oh, but it was quite short, wasn't it? That's, you know, as we spoke about in the Slayer episode, the length should not matter. No. You know, it really shouldn't. As long as, I mean, okay, you know, less than 20 minutes and you might be taking the piss. But, you know, half an hour or more, as long as you are getting good stuff out of it, that really shouldn't matter at all. So, yeah, yeah. that's... Uh, that's I won't say surprising. I wish it was surprising, but it's disappointing.
0: It is because there are some songs that, some songs on this album are some of the the best songs that Megadeth have ever put out. I mean there are well, songs that that's can That's something of go-
1: that will discuss. Yeah. <laughs> I I'm, and- I'm not making a value judgment on the album itself. I should point out just sure. saying that yeah, if you like it at the time to then look back and say, "Oh, but actually it's much shorter than this other album and therefore I don't like it as much." I think that's that's a bit shitty really.
0: Right. And and uh, the other thing that has sort of tarnished this album i think in in later years is the sort of ongoing feud between dave mustaine and jeff young who was the guitar player that came in to replace chris poland on this album so at the time um chris poland was let go from the band there was a lot of stuff going on and and anybody who knows anything about megadeth knows that um dave doesn't break up well with anybody um and so there's always this sort of you know, bridge burning that goes on whenever somebody leaves the band or whenever somebody moves on, whether he kicks them out or they decide to quit or whatever the case may be. But um, in this case, He's like the
1: Marky e. Smith of metal,
0: yeah, you know, and and, and it's one of those things where. In this case, a lot of the stories about why Chris Poland was let go, there was obviously drug issues, but there were also issues about him sort of uh, stealing gear from the band and uh, taking some guitars and pawning them and all this kind of stuff. And so uh, there's a song on this album, Liar, that is actually dedicated to Chris Poland, and we will talk oh, wow. about that when we get to that <laughs> song, because it's straight venom uh, when you when you listen to it. But, uh, but yeah, so you had that. Um, you had a lot of drug abuse going on at that time. Uh, this was also... Uh, one of the songs on this album deals with the death of, of Cliff Burton as well. So there was just a lot of stuff going on at that particular time and then you're bringing two music two new musicians into that mix and trying to get an album out. And so there's there's just a lot of behind the scenes stuff going on there. Having said that, I really like both Jeff Young and Chuck Baylor as musician musicians and I think they performed a very admirably on this album especially Jeff Young's um, got some ripping solos on this album and you could tell that at the time he in some ways was was maybe a more polished guitar player than Dave Mustaine Um, which which is kind of a one of the themes of Megadeth is that um, it has had a rotating lineup over the years even though there was some stability with the Rust in Peace lineup but Dave does not mess around in terms of bringing ridiculously talented musicians into that band it reminds me a bit of like trans-siberian orchestra where there's just this rotating you know uh crew of amazing musicians that comes through every guitar player that he's worked with um from al petrelli to to jeff young to marty friedman to now kiko Lerrero, i mean they are just amazing that he brings mm. into the band and the same thing um for the most part, with drummers, I think as well. So he's he's always had people that I think a uh, challenge him musically, if not challenge him from a songwriting standpoint, because he's very control oriented. But uh, but certainly can hang with him. You know, he he's there. There's I can't think of any filler musicians that have come in that haven't been able to pull their weight in a band that prides itself on being very um, very complex and, and proficient in in what they're putting out there.
1: Well, and that's. As we talked about before, and we should direct people to um, that show, actually, if you don't know uh, what we're talking about, Brian was a guest on a show that I do called Unjustly Maligned. Um, you can find that at ump.fm, and it was episode uh, nine, I think, um, where we talked about another Megadeth album, actually. Uh, and so we uh, I don't want to repeat too much of what we talked sure. about there, um, but you can go and listen to that if you want to hear us really get into you know Megadeth's reputation and why you know that uh, we talked about the album Risk and why that album maligned and stuff. Uh it was it was a good episode and led in fact to the creation of this <laughs> it podcast. Did. So yes. you should definitely give it a listen. Um but y- you you mentioned there and you mentioned here again the the emphasis on technicality and musical skill and stuff and uh as I've said before that's always been one of the things that has bugged me about Megadeth is I mean, you can it comes through in the music you can hear it on this album there is a massive emphasis on technicality and musical skill at the expense in my opinion of songwriting and I actually kind of wish if he was bringing these fantastic musicians on board I wish that he did actually let them write more music and write songs more rather than being the control freak because you know sort of I didn't know it at the time, as I say. There was just something about Megadeth music that never really grabbed me. But over the years, I've come to realize that what I don't like mostly about them is not. Dave, I don't care about Dave Mustaine as a person, you know, whatever. Um, you know, the metal is full of people who aren't saints. So, you know, I really sure. don't care too much about that. But what I don't like is his songwriting. I just don't think he's a very good songwriter. He's a great musician. He's clearly an amazing guitarist. But I just don't think he's a very good songwriter and I wish that he had let some of these musicians that he'd employed be more involved in that process because maybe then they would have come out of it with better songs.
0: Yeah. And I think that's one of those sort of, um, Inarguable things. It's one of those things that you can't be convinced otherwise of. You know what I mean? If you if you don't care for Dave Mustaine's song songwriting, then because he writes ninety nine point nine percent of everything that that band puts out, yeah. you're not going to really be into Megadeth. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that's one of those things where it's it's difficult to convince people otherwise. With I am a fan of his songwriting, and I think that um, there are certain albums that have definitely have the emphasis much more on technicality. But there are also albums that I think have more of a varied sound, and I I like this album because I think they're doing some different things there. I mean, you have, and we'll talk about the tracks in a minute, but you have songs like In My Darkest Hour or Mary Jane, which are a real change-up from something like a 502 or a Hook and Mouth or a Liar or something like that. And so I, I find a lot of times that very early Megadeth had more range, I guess, for lack of a better word, than maybe what their sound started to become out of this album and into uh you know Rust in Peace and Killing and um, Countdown to Extinction and then when they started to when they started to try and branch out again and have more of a dynamic range they ended up going much more towards radio rock and i think that's right, where they That's ended when up you losing. get risk. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> right. So you get risk. So instead of going back to looking at their roots of some of the stuff that they did on Killing is My Business or Peace sells or so far so good so what they went more towards radio and that is not the range that their fans were looking for them to you know to adopt at that point <laughs> um, but then again there are fans of megadeth who want rust in peace every time out that's all they want they want right, right. straight up
1: shredding. they want them to be slayer yeah they, they,
0: yeah they they want a they want an album that they can use as a textbook for guitar you know what i mean and so ah, and, right, right, and, and so right. rust in peace is and that's the thing too is is many of the fans that come to megadeth Come to Megadeth because Dave Mustaine is pretty widely considered in the metal world as one of the best guitarists ever. And so people. Oh, sure. And
1: like I say, I I would not take that from him whatsoever. He is, I've seen, you know, I've seen videos of him playing. He is clearly an incredibly talented and skilled, you know, because talent's no good without practice and skills no good without that spark to begin with. He clearly has both. You know, I would never take away from his abilities as a guitar player.
0: But I think your your point is extremely valid in that because he retains so much control over what comes out, that then there are things that he could have allowed other people to help him with that he has not allowed people to help him with, and so that's why um, for good or good, bad or indifferent, you get what you get with Megadeth. So right, um, well,
1: it's it's like we've said before, it's the Dave Mustaine band. And it either is. you're on, either you're on board with that or you're not, right. But that is what you're going to get. And unfortunately, as I say, that doesn't appeal to me. And that's simply why I, I don't like them. You know, if I liked like you, if I did like the Dave Mustaine band, then I'm sure I would be a massive Megadeth fan, but it is just, I just can't get into it. Sure. I mean, well, so Let's
0: talk about I, why you didn't get into this album.
1: Well, after, <laughs> it, it, here's the thing. I mean, along the same lines i have listened to this album this is the first time i've heard this album it turns out that i have heard one or two tracks from it before live on the one occasion that i saw megadeth live um but other than that this is the first time that i'd heard this album and after listening to it many times over the past couple of weeks um i i if you ask me now i couldn't hum any of it to you yeah like none of it has stuck in my mind at all and that's that's kind of what i mean that's you know, indicative of it just doesn't, it does there's nothing there that pulls me in uh, about it. It's uh, and I don't know why it is purely a taste thing. There's just, you know, there's, I was listening to it and almost every time I listened, I went, hang on, which tracks this again? Oh, it's that one. Oh, I didn't remember it. Oh, sure. So
0: (laughs) I'm just looking up one of the set lists that they played when I went to see them because I, I forgot to do that this time around, but yeah, let's jump into the album. So, uh, so i think if you're going to name a song that is forgettable and i might have to agree with you on this album i think into the lungs of hell which is the sort of uh instrumental that we get to open the album could be that song a because there's no lyrics
1: opening an album with an instrumental is i mean it's ballsy i'll give you that um and it does really kind of set out the stall of of what megadeth is you know that you can't uh, i won't take that away from it you know it is sort of okay this is clearly this is what we want to say this is what you're going to get we are a very technically accomplished band who play very widdly 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 sort of style guitar music, uh, and you know, and this is what we're about is this complex, fast playing music. Um, it does kind of detract from; it kind of gives you the impression that the lyrics aren't going to be important, which I know is not true, and so it, it's a shame in that sense. Um, well, yeah, and it, it's and it's a great title a great title into the lungs of hell what a great title but it's not again it's just, it's just not very interesting
0: here's my criticism of this song it shouldn't take that long to get to hell hell should be a <laughs> short trip
1: yes so so yes.
0: you know and i hate to say on an album that's 34 minutes long that i want to trim song time and and for the most part i don't have a problem with any of the lengths of any of the other songs on this album but into the Lungs of Hell is a 3 minute and 29 second song. And the yep. problem that I have with it is the rhythm is just looping. And in and, and, yep. uh, and it would be one thing if it was a shred fest from start to finish, and it was just trading solos back and forth. And there's a good amount of that here, but I would say of the 3 minutes and 29 seconds, there is probably 1 minute and 29 seconds of soloing, and then a solid 2 minutes of them just repeating the main riff uh, in a loop, over and over and over again. Yep. So, it, so my thought about this song, if I was the one engineering this album and and you know uh, and looking at the flow of this record, I would have made this song a minute and a half. Yeah, you I, know?
1: My, I've got it literally. I'm looking at my notes now, and I wrote uh, that this track basically goes to to the heart of my problem with Megadeth. It's like, yeah, yeah, that's very impressive. But I wish you'd done more than played the same eight sure. bars over and over again for four minutes.
0: Right. Sometimes less yeah. is more. And this is yeah. one of those where if you want to show off Jeff Young's capabilities as the new guitar player of Megadeth, and you want to showcase, obviously, Mustaine's ability to solo as well, um, you can do that without taking three and a half minutes to do it. Because yeah. by the time the first song on the album is over, you want it to be over. And that's yeah. not good. You it, know, It should you... have ended around
1: the two minute mark, Correct. I reckon. Yeah. reckon.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I'm totally what... on board with that.
1: And not only that, but the next song has two minutes before any lyrics come in, so you get nearly six minutes of nothing but instrumental to open the album.
0: Which really cripples the second song, Set the World to Fire, because that song, I think, could have been the opener on this album. And because it, it does have that intro that you just mentioned, I think mm. you could have you could have done this, and you could have stuck into the lungs of hell maybe at the halfway point or something like that, or even finished well, up with an instrument or the
1: last track. Yeah, sure, yeah. absolutely. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the end. Yeah,
0: um, it's
1: yeah, it's a good riff. Set the world of fire. Actually, I kind of I do like that sort of you know the main riff and, and I the do opening is is yep. okay, and I like um, the way
0: that and, and this might just be a flaw in the production, but it, and this happens several times during this album. This album has a, in, a very interesting sort of production history because they fired the guy that was producing it sort of three quarters of the way through the album. And they brought in a guy by the name, I think of Michael Wegner, who was a guy who ended up producing, uh, he's produced a ton of people. Let me see if I can bring it up.
1: I can say that name rings a bell. Yeah.
0: It rings a bell because he produced master of puppets. Um, oh, right, for Metallica, you <laughs> but that's not all. I mean, he, uh, um, no, that, that is almost
1: certainly where I'm thinking of him from though. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So Michael Wegner, uh, Michael Wagner this is some of his discography he did he's uh, produced accept he's produced Alice Cooper Dokken uh, Great White uh, Kiel Kings X Megadeth Metallica Motley Crue Overkill Ozzy Raven Skid Row White Lion uh, Testament he did Low uh, he did the mixing on that, so he oh. so he's had different. Oh,
1: um, like lows and oh, well, the mixing on that album is awesome. And, and so
0: I think he was brought in to mix this album because uh, at the time they were really not happy with what the mixes were that were coming out. So they let go of the guy that was uh, mixing that, and I think it was Jeff Young, who may have had a relationship with uh, with Michael Wagner, and he brought him in or at least reached out to him, and then, and then he ended up uh, mixing the album. But what's interesting about this album from a production standpoint is there are times where almost part of the sound like fades out and comes back in. It's got a very sort of raw, uh, sort of recorded live in the studio element to it, I think, as you go through some of it. And in that uh, first song, Into the Lungs of Hell, it almost feels like the background riff and rhythm as the solos are being played almost loops out and then loops back around in it's got this very sort of circular feel to it um that you can hear especially during the uh some of the like the the tapping and and stuff like that yeah. and during the solo so it's, it's kind of interesting i like a lot of those things in the in the production especially with older albums i like to hear the sort of rough edges about that so i actually like that about this album but you can definitely hear some some uh, parts where it sort of fades out and fades back in which is kind of interesting
1: well and set the world afire specifically i think more so actually than the because it's got lyrics because it has vocals more so even than the opening track really highlights the the bad production i mean you know it let's let's be it has a terrible sound and we're talking here about the original there is a, a remix version which is basically the version that you will get in most places now, but Which I,
0: I think is worse, and I will talk. About oh, that really? In a minute, wow. But yeah, I but do.
1: I I scored a copy of the original of this awesome. on on e- on eBay. Um. So yeah, it's so I am listening to the bad production version, the original version, and it is pretty terrible. But as I've said before, I don't care. Sure. About that because as long as the songs are good, I mean, look at most of the early Testament albums. Oh, sure. Terrible. They sound terrible, like they're recorded
0: production. through a door. To the garage that someone is playing the album in,
1: <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah and there is a bit awful. of
0: this too. It sounds, it sounds. Um, there are there are parts of the mix that just sound far away.
1: Yeah, it's you know, just it's yeah. dreadful. But you know what matters is the songs, and those early Testament albums, for example, have some great songs in them. I don't care about that, but this does really highlight the bad production. This song because it is yeah just mixed awfully, and it serves to highlight, unfortunately, Dave's voice. And, and this, this again goes to, you know, it's the Dave Mustaine band. Um, but I, I do not like him as a vocalist. I imagine, imagine if he had had the, the balls to, uh, do an Iron Maiden, you know, and sure. sort of like, uh, to, to employ a better vocalist than sure. he is to go, look, I'm going to write, I'm going to be in charge. I'm going to write all the songs. I'll even write all the lyrics, but you can sing them. Right. Um, that alone. Almost certainly would have improved Megadeth in my eyes, and we can do um, a
0: whole podcast about you know the reasons for why that is. But I think a you know you're still talking about a guy even as if we watch some kind of monster that that is still living in the shadow of Metallica. So here you have oh, sure, Dave Mustaine, yeah. who you know was was kicked out of what was going to become the biggest band in the world and was certainly on its way to do that at the time, and he was just uh, he was just filled with piss and venom coming out of that band and and that's where all the anger comes from you know around uh wanting to make every record more ferocious and every record more more sort of uh heavy and and technical and and just show the world that you know metallica let go of the greatest guitar player in the world you know that that's where he's coming from here and so it's the whole you know lead singer by default sort of thing where okay if i'm going to do this thing i'm going to I'm going to be the singer of the band, too, because I need to have control over it. And and I don't disagree with you. It would be interesting to see. And he's worked with, he did a side project called MD45, where he brought in um, a lead singer and and played on it. And, uh, and I don't know that that was the best lead singer for him at the time, but I, I agree. It would be interesting to see. You know what that would have looked like but set the world afire which is the second tune on this album is a very important megadeth song for a couple of reasons number one the uh it sort of captures a lot of what megadeth's early imagery was about so megadeth is uh, the death of over a million people by nuclear uh explosion that's sort of the the definition of what a megadeth is and yeah. so that was something that of course during the 80s and uh in the, the sort of nuclear threat era that was a big that was a big concept that was out there and the title for this song was originally megadeth and after some oh. discussing you know uh, that megadeth might actually be a good name for the band they ended up changing the name they ended up naming the band megadeth but but this song set the world afire was the first song that dave mustaine ever wrote lyrics for and he wrote some of this song on the way back from being kicked out of metallica when he was on the bus
1: Oh wow! So this is actually quite an old song. Then. It is
0: quite an old song from a lyrical standpoint. I don't know how much of the riff stuff that he had done at that point, but um, you know, it's a song about a about a nuclear holocaust and and the world being destroyed, and uh, and it's also sort of epitomizing you know the, this idea that Megadeth is just this sonic assault and and it is you know it's just this destructive force, and so uh, so set the world on fire was was the title that they ended up settling on,
1: which which makes the bad production even more unfortunate, really, doesn't it? Well, you know, when you're in
0: the apocalypse, you're not going to have the same level of production quality that you might have in the in the modern technological era. So I in some ways this album was ahead of its time because he it was produced as if it was happening during the apocalypse. Right. That's how Listen, I like to think about listening
1: it. Listening on a wind-up radio in the exactly. terminator bunkers. <laughs> you know, he's
0: in the middle of Fallout 4 and he's and they were yeah. trying to record an album in one of the bombed-out buildings there. Um so yeah, so that's interesting in and of itself, that this is sort of tied into the roots of Megadeth, um, not only the, the the chronological beginnings of the band, but where the name came from and everything else. Now, the um, the line in this song, it says, the arsenal of Megadeth can't be rid of. It comes from a pamphlet that a California senator named Alan Cranston had put together at the time. And and part of the pamphlet, it was obviously about uh, nuclear war. It said, the arsenal of Megadeth can't be rid no matter what the peace treaties come to. So it was one of those sort of paranoid right. sort of things about, you know, that this is the impending doom. And so, of course, Megadeth took the uh, A out of the word death when they shortened their name to, you know, and, and put their name out there as Megadeth. But that's where that particular lyric comes from, and that lyric is in the song. There's a lyric from uh, from a quote from Einstein in the song and he where he says we'll use rocks on the other side and he was referring to the fact that the next world war will be fought with stones because we would be bombed back to the stone age when the nuclear war happens so there's there's um the, as you said before it's a shame when the lyrics are not prioritized because in some of the early stuff from Megadeth, there were some songs that Mustaine wrote that lyrically had some very interesting imagery and some interesting you know, themes in them. And when that stuff sort of gets pushed to the wayside, it's unfortunate because this is one of those songs that I feel like, um, if you just read the lyrics top to bottom, is a pretty interesting song and very indicative of that time and what some of the themes in uh, metal and fiction and just you know, mm. sort of the culture of the world at the time. I'm, we're out there.
1: Well, and, you know, during the Cold War, this was it released a year before the Berlin War came down, you know, two years before the end of the Cold War. So, yep. and yeah, they are good lyrics. You know, he is a fairly good lyricist, but that just makes me wish that he'd done a Steve Harris all the more. Sure. Because again, Steve Harris, great lyricist, but, you know, doesn't sing. <laughs> one other thing worth um,
0: noting, distorted figures walk the street. It's 1999. That is one of the I, lyrics in the song. So that's when the Holocaust is happening. 1999.
1: Oh, does he sing ninety nine? I yeah. thought he sang eighty nine.
0: Yeah, no, it's ninety nine, and ah, uh, right, right. and and so you know he's projecting... maybe that's why you
1: get maybe that's why you got confused about the release date of the album. Earlier. Exactly,
0: <laughs> he's projecting ten years into the future where everything is going to completely <laughs> fall apart. So, uh, so yeah, it's th- really
1: interesting about the name of the band though because uh, I always assumed, and th- there may well have been some of this in it as well, but I always assumed that he was called Megadeth partly so that racked in the store they would be next to the Metallica albums.
0: Well, and in front of, right? Because it's M E G and M E T. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> <And> <laughs> oh, so... yeah. Of course,
1: because stores used to go front to back, didn't they? On oh, the make no yeah. <laughs> mistake.
0: I'm sure. Uh, and I and I have yet to read Dave Mustaine's biography, and maybe it talks about that in in the biography. But I am absolutely oh, like positive. he'd ever
1: admit that. <laughs> uh, uh,
0: but when you look at the when you just look at those two words next to each other, and when you look at their logos and things like that, there is absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, um, some some very clear intent there. To have that be comparable (laughs) to Metallica, Um, a couple other quick things just to note about the song. Number one, the freaking riff is killer. It's just a killer, killer riff. And as you mentioned, it it comes in at one forty. It comes in at at about two minutes. It's about one minute and forty-seven seconds when when that riff is first played. And holy crap! Like that to me is just such a pure Megadeth riff. It's this, you know it's just a freaking awesome i could listen to that riff all day long and then i really think that chuck Baylor's drums uh especially when he's you know hitting and holding the cymbals, at that when he's sort of driving home the end of that riff is just so yeah. good i love the way that song kicks in
1: it it is a it's a good riff i don't i wouldn't go quite so far as uh you know as it being the the greatest riff but it's a good riff certainly this is one of the better songs on the album in my opinion without and part of that is because it has that good main riff yeah
0: and he also employs something in this song uh, i believe he employs it in the song because i thought i heard it where um he became quite known for over the years and that's called the spider chord and what it is basically is it is this um Way of playing uh, alternating chords where you're never l- really lifting your fingers off of the strings. And if you if you go on YouTube and you Google uh, and, you, and you search for spider chord, you'll see he did an interview with Dave Navarro where where he was sort of showing him what he was doing there. And it's used in songs like Wake Up Dead and Holy Wars, The Punishment. Do there's there's a bunch of songs that Dave plays this particular thing that he. Uh, that is attributed to him as sort of. Oh, the, he invented
1: the, it. Yeah, no yeah, question. and, and yeah. it's
0: really interesting. And there's actually some cool videos on YouTube of people trying to teach people how to play that chord, like just just you know guitar teachers and stuff like that. And it's really cool to see that because it's this um, it's this economy of hand movement so that you can play faster and cleaner, and it produces a different, it produces a smoother sound than if you're lifting and changing in between each one of those chords. And so that's sort of one one technique that when you hear it you can start to kind of pick it out in some of some of the songs right. but also I, gives you an idea of of the type of um guitar player that he is
1: yeah i didn't actually realize that this song employed that i i do know the spider chord but i didn't i don't know it well enough to recognize when it's used i think hangar 18 actually is another track that uses it i think that might be uh, where i first I tried sort of to pull a list
0: around, I and think. i couldn't find a definitive list of right. songs that it was used in um, but i started googling because i thought i heard it like spider cord and it seems right, to be right. that people are talking about how it was used in the song and there's a it's it's at like three minutes and 15 seconds where you can sort of hear these sort of alternating chords um i love the way that the solo kind of climbs and i love 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 at about 414 where he, the lyrics come back in, and he's saying, "Dig deep the piles of rubble and ruins," and there is the those those singular notes being played. You know, sort of the end of the solo trailing off as the lyrics come back in, with also that killer riff playing in the background. I just love the way they come out of the solo in this song. Um, so uh,
1: now I've got a specific note that I do not like the solo. Oh, I love that, <laughs> and it sounds so
0: raw too. It almost sounds like ah, like the notes are just super raw.
1: It, it's like it's it feels like it's stuck between slayer and metallica like kirk's solos are generally pretty tuneful and they generally work well with the dynamics and melody of the song they may not be the most complex but you know they're generally they're pretty complex but they're certainly they place a lot of emphasis on melody and dynamics slayers as we talked about before they're just chaos Dive yes. straight in. No, notes flying everywhere, all flesh over being the place. off in the pits of hell. right? Yeah, yep. whatever. Uh, it just feels like absolute whammy bars, chaos.
0: bends, all that kind right. of crazy stuff. Yeah. This,
1: the the this one sort of feels like neither neither fish nor fowl. You know, it's not um, it's not chaotic. You can tell that it's clearly not chaotic, but there are still loads of fret wanking with you know almost no melody and no dynamic in it, and yeah, just you know pick one.
0: <laughs> but again, I think we're we all, we're talking about this apocalyptic, you know, sort of world destructive song sort of thing. So I, I, and maybe it's not, you know, intentional, but I do feel like with some of the, some of the ways that uh, they play chords and some of the, that kind of, there's a lot of flourish to what, to a lot of the stuff that, that Dave and also his other guitar players do in Megadeth. And so I, I kind of feel like some of that stuff is intentional just to be this sort of weird like almost off-tune coming out of it but uh, but I love that in the background you've got the riff just kicking in behind it and it's almost like um you're ha- you're still hanging on to this piece of the solo.
1: Yeah, I do like the end of it and the way it segues into the final part of the song. That's yes, uh, you know, the bringing it back up, that does work. I agree with you there. But the yeah, the solos themselves, both of the solos, the second one's better than the first, but they're still both just pretty bad, I think.
0: So so moving on to Anarchy in the UK, what did you think of their cover of the famous Sex Pistol song?
1: Okay, so uh, for people who haven't heard me rant about this before on various other shows, um, my my grand unified theory of cover versions is that you should either make a version that is so much better than the original, played better, performed better than the original, that it just blows the original out of the water. Good example of that would be Soft Cell's version of Tainted Love, which is so much better than the, uh, than Nora Jones's original, Gloria Jones, <laughs> Nora Jones, uh, Gloria Jones's original that nobody even remembers Gloria Jones's original. You know, unless you're a Northern soul, uh, aficionado, you've never even heard of it. Anthrax's
0: antisocial is probably another uh, example of that. Uh, who,
1: who was the original by?
0: I can't remember who it was, but it was a cover tune that you don't even remember who the original Which was Which makes by. my point. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that,
1: that. Um, so that's good. Or, or you make it your own. And you do it in your own style so that it is completely different uh, and therefore, you know, is almost incomparable to the original. And a great example of that is the typo negative version of Black Sabbath Mm -hmm. by Black Sabbath, which sounds nothing like the original song. And I mean, like apart from maybe three chord changes, it's almost and a few lyrics, it's almost completely different. But if you know the song well enough, you're like, oh, yeah oh yeah, this is a cover version, wow. But it sounds, if you didn't know it, you would just go, oh, well, it's a type of negative song because it sounds like a type of negative song.
0: Uh, um, I think Marilyn Manson's Sweet Dreams cover is an interesting one. Uh, uh, no, see,
1: no, no, Sweet, uh, Sweet Dreams, I think, is a bad cover version. That's, okay. that's an, ex- that's an Maybe example. Maybe we'll of do a
0: covers I- episode sometime.
1: Maybe. <laughs> that's one that I think doesn't do either of those. And I should say here that this is not... Uh, by way of sort of showing that this is not just because i don't like megadeth there are some bands i like like marilyn manson and even paradise lost that have done bad covers that i think are just boring and you know they didn't do enough interesting things with them so this isn't just me you know ragging on megadeth but i think this unfortunately again is one of those songs that does it doesn't do it better than the original and it doesn't do Anything interesting with it to make it a Megadeth song? It just it literally yeah. sounds like Megadeth singing, exactly. Anarchy in the UK, yep. and that's I, I, just you know.
0: I really have nothing to argue about with with this take. I mean, other than the fact that um, what I thought was cool about it is that they actually got the Sex Pistols, Steve Jones, to come in and play guitar on this song. And so there's the there's sort of uh, there's not really a lot of soloing in this song, but the second solo that you hear. At about the one minute, is that actually by Steve Jones? Yep, it's actually by (laughs) Steve Jones. So, so he came into the studio and he um, played on this cover. Which, knowing what a big fan of the Sex Pistols that Dave Mustaine is, I think that's cool because he got to play, you know, a cover of one of his favorite bands and also do that. But you're right; it's not doing anything special. In fact, it's a sloppy cover in that, and and of course, they didn't have uh, the immediate accessibility of uh, lyrics and stuff to this day, but the sum of the lyrics in that song are changed not because they were conscious changes. It was because he misheard the lyrics of the original song (laughs) and then proceeded to repeat a misheard version of the lyrics in the song. Oh, no. (laughs) Um, And so you'll see that a couple of places uh, in one, especially one famous line um, that is supposed to be and other council tendencies is supposed to be the lyric in there. And clearly it is not the lyric that Dave Mustaine sings in that song. (laughs) And so, uh, and, and the other thing, no dog's body is another song, uh, lyric that he uh, sort of misheard. And so there's a lot of repeating of, of misheard lyrics there. And obviously the change to Anarchy in the USA is a conscious one. And what's interesting about oh, right, sure, this song that's, you know, that's is fine, yeah. until Dave Mustaine became sort of, a, uh, sort of a born-again Christian and stuff like that, Anarchy in the UK was the way that Megadeth closed every live show. Every really? live show. It was wow. the staple closing song of their live shows. And I've probably seen Megadeth... 10 or 12 times in concert over the years and that was absolutely something that uh that they played forever um and then uh and then actually the one
1: the one time i did see them when they were sort of a mid band on a a metal one single day festival um they did play it but it was right in the middle of their set it was not Oh, you know what
0: you you know when they when they they at one point they started changing to Holy Wars was the closing song and I'm sorry that's the one I was thinking of Holy Wars is the one when he became a born again Christian he stopped playing as the closing song but Anarchy in the UK was was uh, maybe that was the one that replaced it actually that might have been it it might have been that Anarchy in the UK replaced that as the closing song when they stopped playing Holy Wars as the closing song of the of the of the show but Anarchy in the UK was a staple of their live performances for years and years and years and years. I think they've played it every single time uh, that I've seen them. So uh, so that's an interesting one, but as you said, they're not doing anything with and it. And it
1: seems, it seems a really odd choice to take an album that only has eight tracks and only runs for like 33 and some minutes and use up three of those minutes with a cover version. It, that's a really strange thing to do. It's also, and also a weird
0: place to put it in the flow of the album.
1: Yeah, well, and it's also like, I know... A lot of bands do cover versions partly to bring attention to bands that influence them (laughs) to their fans who haven't heard of them. You know, that's a very common thing. A lot of the grunge bands did that with, you know, stuff like Sabbath and Zeppelin songs. But this wasn't even a dozen years after Nevermind the Bollocks. Right. This is less than, this is 11 years after the Sex Pistols album that this was released. So... Nobody listening to this album had not heard of the Sex Pistols, you know, because they had such a massive impact throughout music, throughout culture, Sure, you know, punk, you know, you can say punk died two years after the Sex Pistols and that, that may well be true, but that's still only eight years before this album Correct. was released. Yeah. So it's not like they needed to tell people about the Sex Pistols, you know? So yeah, it's just a really, I mean, I can understand if he was a huge fan, fine. Get Steve Jones on. That's pretty cool. Great. But, Yeah, just a really odd choice for this album. And as you say, for the placement in the album, to put it so near the front, so far up front, that people would, you know, hear it almost immediately. Just really strange.
0: Now, the next song, Mary Jane, is a song that uh, people would immediately just assume from looking at it is about marijuana. In fact, it is about the story of a young witch who was buried alive by her father near a place called Loon Lake in Minnesota. There's actually a gravestone there, and the uh, part of the lyrics of the song are the epitaph on her tombstone. But it's about a young girl who, in the beginning of the song, is confessing to her father that she's a witch, and he kills her. And so uh, there's some real dark imagery there, and it's a pretty big tone change from what you've heard in the first three songs of the album because it's uh, it it to me it's a much it's a much more melodic song than you know the other stuff that they've played to this part. Uh, and, and I think a very interesting song. What did you think of this one?
1: I I don't have that much of an opinion about okay. it. it. It's just kind of there. Um, and, and actually, <laughs> another mistake, if you like, in putting the Sex Pistols cover uh, so early in the album is that it does show, despite the fact that it's not a great cover, it does show what a great song Anarchy in the UK is. Like, you know, what an excellent song. Sure. And following it up with this, doesn't reflect well on megadeth
0: <laughs> oh that's interesting yeah i i don't necessarily agree with that but i think that's that's an interesting uh that's an interesting like, take it, on that it
1: kind of exposes the difference in the differences in songwriting to me makes it really stark and yeah you know i'm afraid anarchy in the uk wins out every time for me
0: well it's a tough one to put up on the board and and have someone try to beat that's for sure so it, yeah so in yeah. some ways i i think anarchy in the uk could have been the closer on this yeah. album um, because that's, you know, if you're going to do a cover and you're going to have some fun with it, throwing that song at the end of the album is not necessarily a bad idea. So, um, and I do then- like
1: the bridge in this song. I think that's the most interesting part of it is the bridge has a nice riff, some interesting dynamics, you know, when it comes a couple of minutes in, I'm thinking, sure. um, Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's good. That's actually my favorite part of this song.
0: (laughs) And there's a lot of that, the the sort of alternate picking and this sort of galloping sort of uh, chugging of the song. There's a part where it's this sort of call and respond lyrics and solos and stuff like that. I kind of like that. Um, and what else did I have as notes on this one? Uh,
1: Yeah, and actually, it's the
0: tombstones epitaph was the inspiration to the bridge section lyrically of the song. So, so, so it is sort of this, uh, which is kind of cool. And one of the things that you know uh, I think draws as a horror fan and as you know a fan of 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 sort of uh, you know the mystical and stuff like that. I do like these songs that sort of delve into these um, you know witchcraft and the occult and stuff like that. And Megadeth was never like Slayer in terms of most of their you know, lyrics and and songs being about that type of stuff. But I did like that they would, would throw that stuff in there too. So in between the government conspiracies and the, you know, the nuclear (laughs) Holocaust and all that kind of stuff, there was also some witches. Yeah. There's some witchcraft and some occult and stuff like that. So I dug that. Um,
1: Hey, I live in Pendle, which is basically the English equivalent of like Salem. Okay. Like the, the most famous witch trials in our history, you know, happened here. Um, well, the witches came from here. These trials themselves happened in Lancaster, um, but yeah, the, the Pendle witches are, you know, some of our most renowned uh, witches in h- historical witches in the country. So, yeah. and I, you know, I, that's related to why I moved to this area. That's a long story, and it's not quite what it sounds like, but <laughs> it is related. Um, so, yeah, I love a bit of witchcraft, and again, the lyrics here. Yeah, I like the lyrics. The lyrics are great. You're right that calling it Mary Jane is kind of, you, I mean, you can't, you can't do that and not know that people are going to assume that you're singing about drugs. And the so, thing is,
0: is that they kept, uh, it, I, th- I forget what her last name was, but the young woman's name was Mary Jane. It was like Templeton or something like that. So it was, so, or Tellinger or something. So it was, it, it, that was her name. And so that's right, why they right. named it. But you're absolutely right. It, it just immediately, especially, you know, during that era, just invokes, you know, uh, pot leaves. And so you, yeah. you're going to have a tough time convincing people that it's, uh, yeah, it's, that it's really not that. Choice. And I think, you I, so people are listening to it and they're looking for that meaning in the song and missing right. what the song is actually about, right. which kind well, of does uh, it a disservice.
1: And maybe there's a sort of, maybe there's a sort of perverse, you know, maybe that was deliberate and kind sure. of like, ha ha, I will, you know, I will fool all these people. Aha. Uh-huh. The joke is on them. Um But yeah, I don't know. I don't know whether that was the wisest thing. I do like the coda on this song. that kicks in at about three minutes, 15. Uh-huh. Um, it sounds a bit like Iron Maiden, quite like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so, so uh, if not one of Megadeth's, you know, quote unquote best songs, I think kind of an interesting song. And then that is the end of the first side, I believe, of the album. And then you flip the cassette over and you have the first song of the second side, which is 502. This, I, I would assume, this is a love it or hate it song for people. I freaking love this song. Um, I, I love... want not go as
1: far as love, but it is my favorite track on the album. Oh, yeah. good!
0: I'm so glad because it's got this sort of, uh, you know, you've got the galloping opening, and then you've got that you, playing the opening riff over that. So there's no stopping of their, there. There's it, it's sort of a seamless riff overlaying over that uh, that galloping opening, and it revs up. And it's a song about, it's a very simple song lyrically. I mean, it's a song about driving cars fast. And, and this is a theme that you see in a lot of, uh, not a lot of, but a handful of Megadeth songs over the years. They did a song on, um, I think it was Endgame, 1320. There, there's Moto Psycho on uh, The World Needs a Hero. So there, there's definitely songs about driving fast cars and, and, and stuff like that. And so lyrically, this isn't an, an interesting song, but musically, it's got, it's just a great thrash song.
1: Yeah, I, I, nice riff. Uh, Dave's voice actually doesn't sound too bad in this one. I think this is probably his best vocal performance on the album as well. Um, even the finger tapping, you know, the frat, frat wanking is actually like, it fits, it, it works. It's in places where it works and that's the only places it's in. And, you know, it's got pretty good dynamics, this song as well, which is something I know I always bang on about, but something that Megadeth lack in general. But this song, I think, has it. Um, <laughs> I really could do without the skit. In oh, middle. you don't but
0: like the, you don't like the no. uh, the, the stealing the no, car and then crashing I, into the I, you know the tree or whatever.
1: No, because when I first heard it, like, when I first heard it, I wasn't really listening to the lyrics, and then I heard that skit, and I'm like, wait, is is that what it is? Is he just driving a fast car and then he crashes it? Yep. Is that, that what is this exactly song's what actually is actually about? Sir. And then I went and looked at the lyrics, and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, that is what this song's about. So lyrically, yeah, not interesting at all, but like I say, a good vocal performance. I do like
0: the way that the song explodes out of the car crash. I So so even if you cut out 90% right, of that right, skit, yes. I do like the way that the music fades into the, and this is actually one of the songs that I do like the mix on because the music fades into the background while the skit is playing over the front of it. And then when the car crashes, the music explodes out of the car crash, which I thought was pretty awesome. Um, yeah, I think uh, you, so that's a great point you bring out about uh, Dave, uh, you know, musically in terms of vocally on this song, because there are certain songs from Megadeth where you think to yourself, okay, well, if he just stuck within that range
1: right, and yeah. kept things <laughs> in
0: that sort of window, then yeah. he wouldn't yeah, but- embarrass himself and he wouldn't, right. and not, maybe not even embarrass himself, but he wouldn't be reaching for something that he's clearly not capable of doing. And that's one of the things that is can be frustrating sometimes about Megadeth is that you have this guy who is just a freaking... Uh, scientist when it comes to playing guitar and then when you see him struggle vocally it's just a contrast that is unfortunate because yeah
1: Mustaine has never struck me as a man who would let uh you know whose ambition would be limited by his ability sure you know and that's admirable in many ways but yeah, and they've vocals. sold fifty
0: million records, so he's doing right. something right. But you're absolutely <laughs> yeah. right. Like, like if, yeah, sort if of like he like fifty
1: million more than me. <laughs> ex-
0: well, right, but but it, for a guy that's been chasing the um, you know success of Metallica for his entire career, you wonder had he made that choice to bring someone in who could sing, and he right. became you know just the the frontman, guitar player. Uh, would that have changed the success of Megadeth over the years? But I also get the sense that you know part of him was like, well, if James is going to sing. And he's going to be, sing. yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I'm going to sing and I'm a better guitar player than James. So I'll do, I'll, I will do what he's doing better. Um, yeah. and, and uh, but
1: I know exactly what you mean. Like I, uh, I do sing occasionally. And, you know, many years ago when I was in bands, I was often a front man. Um, I, I will, yeah, I have no false modesty. I'm a pretty good front man. I'm not a very good singer. Like my range is really limited, you know, within like three quarters of an octave. <laughs> sure. I'm pr- I'm pretty good. And I can sing with a lot of power. Outside of that, forget it. You know, I just can't do it. I can't hit really high notes. I don't have a very low voice. Um, But within that range, you know, I, I know I can hit it. And that's, so I can relate to, th- and that is frustrating. Yeah, you get a track like this, as you say, where you think like, this is actually a pretty good performance. Why didn't you just do more like this? But like I say, he's clearly... And he's shown over the years, he's clearly a man who will not let himself be restricted. And like I say, I can, I can admire that in some ways, you know, I can identify with that. I, I find that quite admirable, but you know, if you do that, then you've right. got to, you've made your own bed and you've got to lie in it. Exactly. And, and that the ma- flip side is that he doesn't accept it.
0: <laughs> right. And the, and the, and the flip side is that, you know, you're not a fan of Megadeth, and that's one of the reasons. And so, you know, he clearly has made that choice, and and he ha- And you live by the sword, you die by the sword in that situation. Exactly, yeah. So, yeah. Um, so yeah. So, and again, from if you're coming to the band looking for certain things or, or prioritizing certain things, that that turns off a whole area of the audience who's looking for a decent singer when they come to the band. You know, so um, so okay. So well, five hundred two straight ahead, just ripper of a song, yeah. and then although
1: I, I wish they'd ended it properly. Because it just kind of implodes. I like, as you said, the way it sort of blasts out of the the crash. That's fine. But then they don't seem to know how to end it. So they just.
0: It's just Chuck (laughs) Baylor banging on the drums, right? And then playing a Slayer solo in the background, basically. Right. Yeah. Yeah, And then
1: it just kind of fades out. Right. Which uh, I guess
0: conceptually is them trying to capture the whole, you know, car wreck sort of it. But I don't know that you want to necessarily listen to a car wreck, Um, (laughs) you know, at the end of a song. But so conceptually, it does some cool things. And boy, do I, I absolutely love that riff. Um, And then we get into one of Megadeth's... uh, Certainly, if you were to do a top 10 list, I think a lot of people would put this next song on that top 10 list, and it's definitely a song that Megadeth is extremely well known for, I believe if I'm not mistaken, that it was one of the clips that was included in the decline of Western Civilization Part 2, the Penelope Spheris movie where Dave Mustaine was interviewed. I want to say this is one of the things that shows him singing in the studio. I could be wrong about that, but um, In My Darkest Hour is certainly a Megadeth song that they're known for.
1: Yeah. And I only remembered that about halfway through. I'm looking at my notes and I can see that about halfway through, I suddenly went, oh, wait, hang on. Isn't this one of their classics?
0: It, um, I, I guess you could call it, yeah. I mean, certainly, in, in certainly up through the Rust in Peace era, it was still absolutely considered to be one what, of their classics and one that they still play live quite a bit.
1: Right, I mean, in not. I mean, a classic in the sense that the fans will always go crazy sure, for it. Sure, absolutely. You know, like, like Seek and Destroy. You know, yes, it's, exactly. It's not Metallica's best song by any means, but it is a song that when they play it live, everybody goes fucking nuts.
0: And and it's a th- and the theme of this one clearly is pain and loneliness. And this was a song that Dave Mustaine wrote when he heard secondhand of the death of Cliff Burton. So he right. was never contacted by the guys in Metallica when this tragedy occurred, he heard through someone else. And, yeah. and, 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 and so, that is shitty. Yeah. yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. Uh, certainly. And so, um, because you, yeah, well, we, we could go down that whole thing, but, but basically, <laughs> uh, so he writes this song that that isn't directly about Cliff Burton himself, but is about the feelings of pain and isolation and being alone and stuff like that. And there's some interesting lyrics um, in this song. There's some great soloing. My, my favorite solo in this song is actually from Jeff Young, not, uh, from Dave Mustaine. It's about, at the uh, 4 minute and 35 mark, just a blistering solo from Jeff Young. And you can hear how um, what I like about Jeff Young is he's smooth. He's very smooth in his playing. And it's not as uh, frantic or edgy or, um, in some ways, choppy sometimes as what Mustaine does in his soloing. Mustaine's very good at right at, at keeping riff, riffs uh, very smooth, as we talked about with the spider chord thing. But you can tell a Dave Mustaine solo when you hear it, and with uh, with Jeff Young solo, he's just got this really his fingers just flow over uh, the strings, and, the, and so I really like that that solo. And of course, the song you know picks up in tempo and picks up in in uh, heaviness as it goes on, and it's just a very dark and moody and emotional song um, that I think. I would imagine over looking back at their discography and all the songs that he's written and stuff that Dave is probably um, will stand behind and is pretty proud of.
1: Do you think really? Wow. I think so. Okay. So it doesn't do really much for me at all. Uh, I mean, I understand the background behind it. And when I remembered the context of it, it, was like, Oh yeah. Cause you told me about that. This track was, you know, in response to Cliff's death and stuff. And so I can, you know, I can bring a little contextual understanding to it, but Musically, uh, just, it, re- <laughs> it reminds me of early Halloween, which is not really what I expect from Megadeth. I could just, I was like, yeah, I could imagine this on Walls of Jericho, you know, uh-huh. with when Kai was still singing. It's, uh That
0: reminds me, we're going to have to do a Halloween album at some point. Oh, we'll, but, yeah. we'll definitely yeah. do a
1: Halloween album, yeah. But um, it's not a good performance from, so, vocal, vocal performance from Dave. I, will I don't think musically quote. it's. Uh, uh, that he on, said
0: because uh, there's a lyrical site that i found that has quotes of like what was stuff behind the albums and so he says um uh this is in 1990 he says this is a song that was written the day i found out about cliff burton uh it's a very moving song for me because it really expresses a lot of the emotion that i was going through i was really sad and i think the music kind of carries that kind of feeling with it a lot of people have written our fan club and said you know at times i have nothing to live for life sucks and then you die and in uh in that this song has been uh, helpful to them emotionally, kind of yada yada. He says, um, sometimes people have said that it gives them hope to carry on, it's sort of cathartic. And he says, anyways, I hope this song works for you. And then he also went on to say, um, Maria Ferraro, who was known as Metal Maria back in the day she worked for Megaforce Records, she was the one that called uh, and let him know that uh, that Cliff Burton had died. Right. And so... Uh,
1: yeah, I mean, like I say, I, you know... C- Bringing contextual understanding to it. Yeah, I can. And if people like this song, hey, you know, knock yourself out. Christ. There are people out there who like Brussels sprouts and I can't stand them. So, <laughs> you know, that's whatever. But for me, I just, if I if I hadn't remembered that you'd told me that this song was significant, I would have just gone, poof, meh. You know, I, right. it's just not interesting. They're like the last 10 seconds of music in this. To me, are the most interesting part of the song.
0: Sure, um, absolutely.
1: Which, which makes a change because most of the songs on this album have pretty bad endings. <laughs> uh, yes, but this one actually has a good musical ending. I uh, like that. Totally. But we agree. have that brings us to we have got to talk about what on earth, what is that that, that stuff at the beginning and end? That weird VO about credibility and stuff. That's like cause that's not Cliff, is it? Or I is it?
0: I don't think so.
1: It sounds just like a random fan.
0: I think you're right.
1: Yeah. And, and it's I, just, it's just weird. that That's, that's a perfect example of, um, you know, that old adage that like, if you have to tell people you're cool, you're not cool.
0: Right yeah and I, I would say that Dave's probably guilty of that in a lot of the songs that they've you know written over the years like if he, like uh especially some of the early stuff like if you have to tell people you're a super heavy heavy metal band, then you're not maybe the superest heavy heavy metal band right. um that type <laughs> of stuff so no, I totally get that um I'm extremely interested to know what you think of the last two songs in this album, so let's talk about liar.
1: Okay, so Liar, I actually like.
0: Oh, awesome, Um, because I love it.
1: This is the other track on this album, that, uh, apart from 502. Basically, if this and 502 were on a Mm -hmm. compilation, I wouldn't skip them, (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of the highest compliment I can pay a Megadeth track.
0: (laughs) Is it safe to say that you like the more up-tempo, in terms of, at least from a riff standpoint of Megadeth stuff, is that if you had to pick, like, what... What flavor it of their music? It seems to be, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. And, and I'm not, you know, I'm not a guy who's obsessed with, you know, speed and like fast tempo stuff. Sure. You know, most of my metal listening nowadays is actually quite low tempo, you know, like doomy stuff. But I don't know. I think maybe...
0: Because with Megadeth, they're kind of controlled chaos, where I think with Slayer, it's just chaos. You know what I right, mean? Right. So if you're looking for something, that's one of the things that drew me to, to Megadeth as well, is that from a thrash standpoint, like they they always felt like on the edge of it to me because they were they were um a little bit more controlled and a little bit more clean and and to, for me a little bit more accessible than some of the um some of the other thrash metal bands right, out but, there.
1: But controlled, clean and accessible is actually kind of like things that I don't like generally yep. <laughs> about metal. So I'm wondering I wonder if it's because the up-tempo tracks by necessity because they are the fast tracks, the riffs aren't as silly okay you know they're, mm-hmm. they're not uh, the riffs aren't as they're not as complex with, right yeah yep. not, not just filled with like notes that you know senseless notes that are just there for R- the sake of it right they're uh, they're maybe, they're
0: less um let me show you how cool i can play this type of riff right and yeah. more just yeah. straight ahead
1: And boom, more boom, just boom. like oh my god this riff is a million miles an hour let's just play it yep um i mean this is a theory that i am literally making up as i, I like speak, it
0: so I'm, <laughs> I'm subscribing to it as we talk about <laughs> it uh, uh so on this song you get just uh cr- Killer, crushing—you know—it's just a great riff to, that the song explodes it right is a good into. Riff, yes. And yeah. then, right before the lyrics kick in, you get that dun 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 dun, and you have Dave Ellefson's bass and Chuck Baylor's kick drum and cymbal, and and, and the and both guitars just perfectly in sync. And I love that. It's just it's almost full stop, and then it kicks in. Dun, dun. And so, like, yeah. I just love the way this song brings you into the first verse and it's so it starts with a killer rift but then it just gets this you know which again to me is is very megadethy where it's just like this well-timed in sync just sort of assault and uh and then it just carries right through the rest of the song
1: and perhaps not coincidentally uh this is the other track on the album that actually reminds me of testament
0: okay i can see that now that you say that
1: maybe that's one of the reasons i like it like even more so than what was the other track i'm looking back through my notes now there was oh no it was it was uh set the world afire oh okay That are that i mentioned yeah cuz i was say i was saying that like i compared it to early testament albums in terms of production but the song does actually sound a little bit like a testament track yep i can um, see that too and i think that liar does as well I, I could really imagine chuck billy singing this um and uh, yeah, and maybe that's one of the reasons I like it. I even like the solo. I even like the solo in this one.
0: There is, well, the nice thing about this solo is it's just hate-fueled, you know what I mean? So it's it's just a ripping solo. And, and this is the song that Dave wrote about the former guitarist, Chris Poland. And if you had any questions about how their relationship ended, then you can see that it didn't end well, um, you know, based yeah. on the lyrics of the song, which is just, to me... Uh, lyrically it's very juvenile. It's basically, you know, the type of, um, you know, trash talking that, that you would hear on the playground, you know, or in the schools of a middle, in the halls of a a junior high or a middle school. Um, just trying to say whatever you think that might hurt the other person, you know, in terms of insulting them uh, and, and what a terrible person that they are. So it's just straight venom from front front to back. And for a Megadeth song, that's not necessarily a bad thing and, and certainly not out of place in, uh, in what you would expect from them. But yeah, this is, this is a pretty straight ahead thrash song to me.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it, lyrically, it, you know, it's like, whatever, it is quite juvenile and not very interesting, but, uh, yeah, t- just the actual vocal itself, uh, aside from the lyrics and yeah, the, the and the, the energy. Musical, yeah. Right. And the, and the, the, just the general songwriting. Yes. Yep. As I say, this is along with 502, this is my favorite track on the album. So
0: and then we finish with a song that is, I think, very interesting for a couple of different reasons. It's not as, uh, it's certainly not as fast as "Liar," but I feel like it might be the heaviest song on the album, um, especially once the the main verse really sort of kicks in, and this is hook and mouth.
1: Mm, really interesting.
0: So, the background of this song is that it's very anti PMRC, which, mm-hmm. for those of you who might be listening and saying, Well, what in the world is that? It is the Parents Music Resource Center, which, during a particular time uh, in musical history, was something that the wife of Al Gore, uh, Vice President of the United States, and the guy who almost became the President of the United States, his wife, Tipper Gore, was the head of this movement, a committee that was formed by uh, four women. Tipper Gore, uh who was al gore's wife susan baker the wife of the current treasury sec- secretary at the time pam hower uh and sally nevius they were known as the parents uh music resource center and what they were trying to do was they were trying to get the recording industry association of america to adopt a rating system similar to the motion picture association of america because their concern was that there were uh lyrics and there were concepts and themes in a lot of heavy metal music that were very offensive and that parents would not want their children listening to, and that there was really no controls on that whatsoever um did which is just
1: I, they did a lot of they did a lot of bad the p m r c absolutely uh like you know they spread a lot of misinformation some of the things that they said some of the mis conceptions that they spread persist to this day. Absolutely. Um, But it is worth pointing out that the whole reason we have to explain who they are is because they were completely and utterly ineffective. Correct. As people throughout history have been when they tried to ban stuff that's bad for the kids. I'm actually just watching um a documentary series on BBC Four at the moment about rock and roll in America, the birth of rock and roll. And it's hilarious watching uh these, you know, the sort of the older generation struggle trying to come to terms with people like Elvis Presley Oh, and the hip and, movements
0: and the and how and you facts, know Domino scandalous it, yeah yeah
1: yeah just absolutely like well i just i just don't think this thing should be uh, available i think it's ruining uh, america's children and uh, and it's you see the same thing over and over and over again um, you, you see the same thing these days with hip hop. Absolutely. And, R&B, and, you know, it's. And when when, when will these people learn?
0: <laughs> when this movement first started, and it started in 1985, when it first started, the PMRC put a list out that was known as the Filthy 15. And so these were 15, uh, not even heavy metal songs. They ranged from pop through heavy metal that they felt were examples of the most objectionable type of content that. They were trying to essentially get rated, and I'll just give you—I'll read you very quickly the 15 songs. So number one, Prince, uh, "Darling Nikki," because it had uh, themes of sex and masturbation in it. Sheena Easton's "Sugar <laughs> Walls," sex. Wow. Judas Priest's "Eat Me Alive," sex. These are the content <laughs> things of the. Vanity Strap on Robbie Baby is uh, sex. Motley Crue's "Bastard." violence and language acdc's let me put my love into you sex obviously twisted sisters were not going to take it uh for violence because they figured it was inciting violence madonna's dress you up sex wasps animal uh sex and language deaf
1: leopards high and dry to, to be fair the full title of animal is fuck, fuck like, like a, a beast, beast. <laughs> yes
0: <laughs> since you said it i will i will acknowledge that that is the title uh deaf leopards high and dry so these aren't even all... Wow, these aren't even really? all Americans' bands. Are, exactly. This is, this is a worldwide uh, net that they're casting here uh, for drug and alcohol use. Uh, Merciful Fates uh, into the Coven for occult. Uh, Black Sabbath's <laughs> Trashed for drug and alcohol use. Mary Jane Girls in My House for sex. Venoms Possessed for occult concepts. And Cindy Lopper's Shebop. For sex and masturbation. That's your filthy fifteen.
1: Cindy Lauper.
0: Cindy Lauper. So everybody from Prince to Cindy Lauper to A C D C to Wasp to Merciful Fate is on oh. the Filthy 15, okay? So the Filthy 15 is this example of them saying, it was like the word you can't say on television thing, but it was basically right, like, yeah, look yeah. at these horrible songs that are across all these genres that are just so objectionable that we don't want our kids listening to. Now, the the one thing I'll say before we move on from the PMRC stuff is that if you have never seen Dee Snyder, the lead singer of Twisted Sister, if you have never seen his testimony at the Senate hearings regarding the, the PMRC, you need to do that. There was three um people that went and testified frank zappa john denver and d snyder and when d snyder comes in he is dressed without makeup but pretty much like uh most of us dressed in junior high school with his jean jacket and everything and he came in with his statement written on notebook paper and then he proceeded to deliver one of the most eloquent and absolutely uh just destroyed everybody on that entire senate hearing committee it's a thing of beauty and it's one of the reasons to this day that even though twisted sister wasn't one of the biggest acts of all time that d snyder is still one of the most well-known and popular um rock singers of all time it's because of his testimony in front of the senate hearings i think you can even watch it on the wikipedia page for uh the pmrc but definitely you can watch it on youtube and it is it's beautiful mm-hmm.
1: We'll I mean, put a link to that. In yeah, the, he just uh, in the goes in, in and basically then,
0: yeah. everybody's expecting I, him to just be this foul-mouthed, you know, inarticulate, uh, oh, unbelievable, yeah, yeah, and you yeah. can see them all with smirking and stuff when he comes in, and then he just proceeds to destroy them. And I, it is- I've,
1: I'm pretty sure I've read the transcript of that, but I've never. Heard audio or seen video, so I'll oh, be interested to watch it that myself. It is wonderful. Yeah.
0: It's absolutely wonderful. So it, many. bands-
1: It's like when it's like just quickly. It's the same thing when um, when Judas Priest were being sued over. Yes. Um, what was the song? That uh, was being like they were accused of like driving a young boy to suicide. Um,
0: I forget what it was. I always think heads are going to roll, but that's not what it was. It was um, it was the whole playing the the
1: it was the backmasking yes the stuff, backmasking yeah, stuff and, you know, um we can put a link that there, to
0: that in the show notes too but yeah, yeah judas priest famously was on trial
1: c- claimed that uh, you know there was backmasking of them urging somebody to do it do it when we and do our stuff. judas
0: priest episode was, we'll, uh, yeah, we'll
1: yeah yeah we'll, we'll, but i just i just wanted to say that i have seen video cuz uh, i saw that on a documentary on the bbc many years ago i have seen video um of the court proceedings in there and rob halford does exactly the same thing Like, everybody is clearly expecting him to be an idiot, and he's incredibly articulate and, you know, like, reasonable and obviously intelligent, and just basically looks at these people like they're mad, like, this is entertainment. Well, and they make him
0: listen to the song backwards yeah, over and over and over (laughs) over again, and try to get him to admit that what we're hearing... Is something that doesn't. They're they're trying to make something of yeah. something that doesn't exist. Well, he, he
1: even he even sings the song in the courtroom, like to uh, hidden messages to them,
0: in Judas Priest's Stained Glass album. So basically, right. that there was messages right. in the actual album. Oh, the whole album. Yeah, right, exactly. Yeah. And so yeah,
1: he he sings lines like so. You know, to show how his style of singing results in these things like gasps at the end of a line. Sure, that they are accusing them of being batmashed subliminal message it's just yeah i mean the whole thing was absurd but yeah that is another video yeah and it's another one where you can tell that the court clearly was not or the prosecution in any case clearly was not prepared for this man to actually be you know an articulate intelligent human being
0: right and so a lot of the um and so the, the result of all that stuff is when you look on a album now and you see parental advisory explicit lyrics or something like that that was the sort of general label that came out of this whole thing the riaa ended up adopting um this sort of label but it's nowhere near the rating system that uh the pmrc was pushing for at the time and in many ways and the
1: whole the whole uh, mature lyrics thing as well was uh or whatever it's called what's the actual label
0: uh parental it, advisory uh, explicit lyrics or explicit par- lyrics that's yeah. it
1: yeah that, that that was a genius pr move that was genius marketing in the end that was well that was the exactly record what I was going to say yeah that yeah. was the record industry's response to like okay well we'll put this on our records and the pm will see went okay okay that'll you know that's a good compromise not knowing that the record industry had already realized that if they did this uh, kids would be more attracted. To Not this. only
0: that, and I will tell you right now that this is how much that it uh, it made me want to get albums. I remember the very first album that I ever bought that had that label on it, and it was uh, Wasp Live in the Raw. It was uh, a ah, it was Wasp's right. 1987 live album that was recorded in uh, Long Beach Arena in California and it had and, and it had that label on it and i remember between that label and the cover of that album which is basically blackie lawless's head severed inside of a kid's closet uh i thought this is probably going to be the greatest album that i've ever heard in my entire life <laughs> uh, and in fact it is probably my favorite live album of all time it's right. it still stands up to this day it's but just an amazing album the explicit
1: album. lyrics sticker became like a seal of quality or something it was the seal it? Of like, pro- it was like the nintendo it, yeah. seal
0: of quality for yeah. music if it-
1: if it didn't have that on it, you were like, "Whoa, it's a metal album. Why hasn't it got the explicit lyrics? Absolutely. Sticker? It was the Can't difference be between <laughs>
0: PG-13 and rated R. I didn't want exactly, to see a PG-13 yeah. movie. I didn't want my horror movies to be rated PG-13. I wanted the gore. I wanted everything. Yeah. And so seeing that label was almost like, okay, I am assured of a level of quality now that I'm buying this album. It's, <laughs> it's going to have the content that I'm looking for in my heavy metal album. So oh, so yeah. uh, Hook and Mouth is Dave Mustaine's anti-PMRC rant and when you look at the lyrics for that song, then you can see uh, it, there's a lot of uh, uh, references to George Orwell's 1984 and the sort of Ministry of Truth in there as well. You know, a little man with a big eraser changing yep. history. Um, my favorite line before the before it kicks in and really gets heavy because there's sort of a rolling bass line that sort of opens this song. Uh, the last line that he says is "Make a person disappear and no one will ever miss you," and then it's dan and it's just a killer awesome driving home of uh the anger and the in the heaviness of this song and so the whole all the lyrics are basically rewriting stories it's all censorship it's all revisionist history it's all you know the government coming in and making stories and words and people just disappear from the pages of history and stuff like that and uh and i i think it, lyrically a, a very cool song
1: I think it's I think the lyrics are the strongest thing about this song uh the the music itself it's it's all right it doesn't offend me but it doesn't really do anything for me but I agree that lyrically it's it's very strong um I do think that it's badly placed. I understand like the the idea of putting the sort of the cut the rallying call for free speech and stuff at the end but I do think that either. Well, basically five oh two could uh-huh. have been a better closer. Okay. Uh Anarchy in the UK could have been a better closer, as we said, and Lungs of Hell could have been a better closer because, you know, finish on an instrumental. Any of those tracks would have been better placed, I think, at the end of this album rather than this track.
0: Yeah, I would have taken uh, anarchy in the UK and put it right behind this one. So you've got yeah. hook and mouth, and then which is the whole anti PMRC, and then you've got the anarchy song right behind it. And I think that yeah. would have conceptually finished the album ah, on a yeah, flourish. Would, yeah. But uh, but there's some great lyrics in the song. I mean that the the whole chant. You know, uh, F is for fighting, R is for red. Um, you know. It, he says, uh, this spells out freedom, which means nothing to me as long as there's a PMRC. So very much the anti PMRC song. But at the end, he says, uh, there's a, a set of lyrics where he says, put your hand right up my shirt and pull the strings that make me work. Jaws will part words, fall out like a fish with hook and mouth. And, you know, obviously just telling the PMRC, just tell me what you want me to say. And that's, that's, that's the world we're living in now is that you'll just put the words right in my mouth. And so, uh, I I just I love this song, and this is a song that again uh, a lot of times Megadeth would include in their live sets. And when they get to the sort of chanting anthem part of the song, where he's spelling out the word freedom, uh, the crowd would obviously go wild and and you know chant along with them and stuff like that. And it's just a very angry sort of heavy song. But you're right, in compared to the. you know some of the tempo and, and the complexity of other songs on the album, this is a very straight-ahead heavy song because I do think he intended for the lyrics to be the main focus of this song and just the uh, the anti-PMRC and the anti-censorship message of the song.
1: It's also, it's the second longest song on the album, and I, I think it's a bit too long. You're like, uh, whenever I was listening to this, you'd get to about the four-minute mark, and I'd be like, right, here we go. Oh, no, no, we've got another minute to go, yeah. <laughs> it's just a little bit too, you know, just goes on a bit. It kind of, you major sure. point and then just go on a bit for the sake of it. Um And yeah, like I say, this is like the second longest track on the album. So yep. I, don't, I don't think it would have hurt it to be a little bit shorter.
0: And then, and then that's it. That's your whole album. And in, in the, the, the entirety of the album is 34 minutes and 31 seconds. So you mm-hmm. could pretty much bang through it twice in an hour. Uh yep. And uh, it does end
1: well. I was, I'll give it that the end, the end, you know, the very last, at the very ending of hook in mouth is good because it's a nice solid whack. And yeah. then just I'm not done. a fish. You know? I'm
0: a man. Hook in mouth as he screams and then it just cuts off. Bang. Yeah. 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 yeah good stuff there. So, um, so yeah, that's so far so good. So what now usually I pull, set lists from the times that i've seen bands live and i've seen mega so many times live that I, I ended up just pulling the uh the first time i saw them live which was at the clash of the titans tour in 1991 it was on my 17th birthday and i saw them at lake compounds in bristol connecticut and they played three songs off of this album uh the they started with wake up dead which is off of peace cells but the second song in the set was hook and mouth so still very much you know very fresh at that point 1991 it's only three years after they put the song out and still very anti-PMRC time for sure. Uh, they also played In My Darkest Hour in the middle of the set, and then they finished up, uh, they closed with a song that we talked about before, Anarchy in the UK. So that was their closer right, yeah. for a while. And then um, at one point, Holy War sort of slipped into that spot. So that was the tour for Rust in Peace, and where they played with Anthrax and, and, uh, and Slayer as well, and Alice in Chains. And so that, to me, will always be uh, one of the greatest concerts that I ever saw because it was my favourite band with two other members of the big four and it happened to be Alice and Chains opening up for them as well. So it was... Right, uh, and
1: one of the most exciting of the new bands, like, yeah.
0: Absolutely, and it was this weird time where, you know, thrash and, and that era of metal was coming to a close and Alice and Chains was rising up the ranks and two years from then would be m- much bigger at that time than any of these bands that they were opening up for. So it was uh, it was kind of an interesting... Um, it was an interesting time there. But yeah, I love Megadeth. I've seen Megadeth many, many, many times in concert, and I will see them again when they come around. Um, The coolest time that I saw them, we have an amusement park out here in Agawam, Massachusetts, which is about 10 minutes from me, and it's a Six Flags uh, amusement park. And when Gears of War launched, the video game, when the first one launched, Megadeth had a song called Gears of War on the soundtrack for that game. And what they did was they were invited by Six Flags to tour a bunch of their parks across the country and just play a three song set at Six Flags. And so I knew someone that was working security at Six Flags at the time. And they um, let me know about it. And I went in, you could play Gears of War in the amusement park and stuff like that. And so they brought him in. And so Megadeth came out and it was the first time I saw them with James Lomenzo playing bass for them. And with the Drovers uh, playing with them, and they came out and played uh, a few songs: "Gears of War," "Washington is Next," and I think they might have played "Holy Wars." I'd have to look back at it, but it was this cool, like half-hour concert that I saw of Megadeth in almost in my hometown that was tied into this video game. And I have a giant uh, particle board. Gear from the Gears of War, the logo of Gears of War, up in my room. I'll take a picture of it so that you can throw it in the show notes, Anthony. But it's <laughs> it's the giant red skull with the ge- with the cog around it. I have that up on my wall in my room, and I got that at a Megadeth concert at uh, Six Flags. So, um, so yeah, my favorite band. I'm eagerly awaiting their follow up to uh, 2013 Super Collider because that album was horrific, um, and they are working now with uh, with a couple of new with the drummer from Lamb of God chris adler i believe his name is and uh kiko Lerrero, who was in a band called angra i believe but he's the guitar player that's working with them in the studio now and they are working on their next album so we're going to get at least one more from them
1: which i probably won't be listening to
0: (laughs) (laughs) but i'll be bugging you incessantly if it's good to listen to it so uh so yeah so that's that i appreciate you um giving that album its due, because I know you're not a Megadeth fan, and and we have spent a lot of time discussing this album, and I really do appreciate that, because they are my favourite band.
1: Hey, well, you know, look, uh, over the course of this show, I am sure I'm going to be playing you albums that you really don't have any interest in, so, you know, that's uh, that's just part of the deal, isn't it? Yeah. But yeah, I unfortunately, this album still does nothing to make me think, oh, I should, you know, maybe I should go and get some of their other early albums or something i just there's nothing that yeah you know just nothing that grabs me um and i really i find it hard to explain why they just have hold such little interest for me it's but like we said it's it's clearly one of those like you either you either like the dave mustaine band or you don't Uh um you know and that's that's not a value judgment it's just you either like it or you don't and i just i come down on the side of don't i'm afraid but but hey, I'm always up for listening to stuff that I've never heard before. So you
0: know, and that is is going to be a staple of this show. I mean, we we've t- taken it easy on ourselves, so to speak, in doing the big four to start off with because it's uh, it seemed like the most appropriate yeah, place yeah. to start. But um, the the basis of the show is going to be that we will be recommending albums to listen to to each other that we may not be familiar with, we may not even like, and we're going to come about and talk on them. And and it's it's your turn to choose. Yes, and we are now break. This is the first like. Completely, I have no idea what it is that you're even going to choose. So uh, I'm excited.
1: (laughs) All right. Well, uh, we are going to do an album by my favorite band, my absolute number one top favorite band, and that is Paradise Lost. Okay. Gothic doom metal band from Yorkshire in England. Actually, pure coincidence, but they formed in a town I now live like less than 40 miles from where they formed. Um, that is an absolute pure coincidence. I'm not stalking them, but nevertheless, um, they are from yeah the north of England, a town called Halifax. They formed in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, they're almost celebrating their 30th anniversary. That's in a, a year or two, actually. Um, they are still going strong. They just released their, I think, 15th wow. album. Yeah. That's uh, a career but- right there. But we are going to talk about their, I think, fourth album, which is called Icon. And it was the album that really kind of started to launch them into, you know, this sort of what would become their career. Um, And when did that come out in the, oh, okay.
0: 1993.
1: Okay. uh, September, I believe, in 1993, which was an amazing time for, well, for metal in general, but certainly for British metal and was really kind of the birth of the gothic doom metal scene as we now think of it. Uh, And that is, you know, something that I'm quite into. So, yeah, they are, well, we'll talk about this in the show, but they are one of those bands that has changed and evolved a lot over the years, Um, but with the same members. a Remarkably stable lineup, considering how long the band's been going. Which is a Um, rarity. It's a real rarity, yeah. The only position that's ever changed is drummer. Like other That's than that, they are all the same members as they started out. Yeah. I'm excited,
0: um, man, because I know nothing about these guys and I have not ever heard that album. So I am, uh, I'll pick it up today and start digging into
1: it. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to hearing what you think about that because yeah, it's, um, it's not their best selling album and it's probably not. And it's so therefore not their most popular and actually maybe even not their most representative because it's difficult to find one that's most representative because they change with every single album. But it is my or one of my favorite albums of theirs uh, and certainly is a really interesting one to talk about just in terms of the context of the band. Uh, And as I say, they are literally my favorite number one band like above all others, even above Genesis.
0: (laughs) So we go back to back with our favorite bands. That's awesome. So that's that's great. I'm looking forward to digging into that.
1: Yeah, let's do it. See you then. You've been listening to Anthony Johnston and Brian attendry Thrash It Out. If this is your kind of thing, please spread the word, rate us on iTunes and support us at patreon.com slash thrash With your help, we can stay completely independent and keep thrashing. If you want to get in touch, go to thrashitoutpodcast.com. Thank you and good night.